0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the NCAST. I'm Guy Weissmantel, your host and Executive Vice President of Marketing here at NContracts. In this podcast, our subject matter experts from across the company will be talking with industry thought leaders about relevant topics and trends and compliance and risk management for financial institutions. You'll learn the latest tips and tools to manage risk in this ever-changing environment. Let's get started. Welcome to the NCAST. My name is Rafael Delian. I'm the Senior Vice President of Industry Engagement, and I'll be your host today. My guest is Bobby Kennedy. Bobby recently retired after 30 years of government service, and Bobby has served in a number of positions in government service, but most notably, the expertise she brings as a technical expert around CRA, fair lending, and many other compliance issues. Bobby is currently self-employed as a federal banking regulatory compliance consultant. In today's endcast, we'll do an overview of humda and we'll talk about the story that Humda tells about your financial institution, uh, reporting errors and why it's important to get it right, systems and processes around humda and information that the board and management should be looking to in addition to those controls around why it's important to have policies and procedures. So with that, Bobby, welcome to the NCAST, and for sake of our listeners, can you give us a little bit of your background, a bit more than I provided at the intro?
1: Thanks, Raphael. I uh, actually started out with the federal government in human resources, but quickly transferred into a bank regulatory agency, and that led into the opportunity to pursue a career in compliance examinations. And over the course of that time, I spent a substantial amount of time in the field, obviously, and spent a number of years, particularly in the early 2000s, conducting fair lending exams, building regression models, using some tools that my former agency, the Office of Supervision had contracted for. And so I have quite a lot of experience in the space working with Humda data, with data integrity issues and with building statistical models.
0: Well, again, I think that's a feat in and of itself, just having built a regression model and doing the statistical analysis around this. So uh, I really appreciate you taking your time with us today to kind of talk about Hamda and a lot of information. So as we begin, I'd like to ask you, uh, what is the purpose of Hamda?
1: So, Humda was one of a number of civil rights laws that were enacted over the 1960s and 1970s. Humda was enacted in 75. It was really intended to shed greater light on uh, fair lending issues in the home mortgage space. Mortgages in particular were considered not only a gateway to the growth of, of wealth, wealth building for consumers, but it was also considered to be the major financial transaction that most consumers engage in. And so this was really intended to shed light on the nature of transactions that banks were engaging in, where they were lending, who they were lending to, where they were not lending, and who they were not lending to. And it really stemmed from a number of complaints from cities like Chicago and Boston, where activists were concerned about the inability of borrowers in certain
0: communities to obtain loans. So it really provided a lot more transparency, but I think one of the things that is different with Humda versus a lot of the things that the regulators do It provided access for the public to look at those lending and uh, how they were doing that. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. It, It increased the transparency and provided some data that allowed some public scrutiny as well as easing regulator scrutiny of bank mortgage lending. So consumers or activists, community organizations, et cetera, are able to take that data and conduct their own analysis of how banks are performing in their markets. And frequently we'll use that data to protest applications, for example, uh, mergers and acquisitions.
0: So it's really, Humda is really about a story that they're telling. You talked about some of those aspects about making it easily transparent, but what are the other factors that really kind of get into that? It's, it's, It's really whether lending and whether not, and what other information is taken into account?
1: Well, of course, the, the, Humda data is a somewhat restricted data set. It would be impractical, obviously, for regulators to require the banks report all of their lending-related data. Often there are hundreds of fields of data that factor into the decisioning process. There are hundreds of data fields that can contribute to... The decisioning process and, and, and to the pricing process because HUMDA collects both action and pricing information. So there are some compromises in the data that are necessary in order to allow a manageable data set that people can use. In some examples, certain data is limited to key elements of pricing, or for example, with points and fees, those are aggregated into a single reportable field in order to reduce the size of the data that's reporting, but that can result in some discrepancies between transactions that occur. So in my case, for example, I bought a condo from a builder and, there were builder and lender credits for using the builder recommended lender. And that allowed me to to reduce the cost. It encouraged me to buy obviously, but once that information is all aggregated, it may distort what a normal transaction would have looked like had I simply bought an existing home as opposed to new construction. So then comparison of my application and loan to another applicant who paid significantly more, for example, in points and fees because they didn't have those credits, could distort the analysis of the two side-by-side transactions. So there are limitations to the data, which is why the regulatory agencies routinely conduct match-pair sampling. So they look at those target files, so a prohibited basis group, a minority applicant, for example, compared to a group of comparator files, so similarly situated applicants or borrowers, and it allows them to get into more detail with those individual files and see the comprehensive data sets.
0: So, you can't always make or the regulators can't make decisions just based on the data. the what the data starts at if, is the basis for asking questions, correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. The statistical analysis of the data, where it is a limited data set, can only go so far. It will identify potential disparities statistically speaking or it can also be used to identify more nominal discrepancies i.e. for smaller institutions, perhaps the lending volumes for certain groups are extremely curtailed relative to say the demography in the marketplace. And so that can trigger a less formal type of analysis, but certainly with the statistical disparities All that does is say that there are disparities in the data that we've collected. It doesn't necessarily mean there aren't explanations for those disparities within the files.
0: And I think that's a good distinction, that there are disparities in the data that need to be investigated and that the regulators will go back to and ask the bank about. So that leads me to my next question is when the regulators are doing testing and sampling, what happens when they find errors? Uh, And and what does this mean? What is the cost to an institution about having errors? And what are some of the ways to help in, in best practices in avoiding errors or processes or systems to use?
1: I think in a lot of instances, that's why we conduct data integrity examinations. There are certain types of data errors that are evident in the reported data itself. For example, certain values can't be reported for certain fields. And so if that value shows up in the string of data in an inappropriate place, that obviously is a readily identifiable error that typically the bureau, the CFPB, will get back to uh, the submitter in order to inform them that, oh, you've got an invalid value in this field. Many institutions, of course, use quality and validity error checks prior to submission, which can be extremely helpful. Another instance of error that's easily identifiable from the data is when a bank or a financial institution reports data in two separate fields that can't be combined together. You can't have a single-family, multi-unit Property, For example, but the data integrity examination, certain errors can only be identified by reviewing a sample of files. And so, for example, the I mentioned points and fees earlier, that's an aggregated field so that the data contained in that field comes from several different sources within the bank's data. And an examiner would have to go through and verify what those fields are and then aggregate them to determine that that value was reported accurately. That is not something we could do simply by looking at the data.
0: Is there certain thresholds that that the regulators look for and are there certain errors that are weighted more or that you're looking at and the volume of errors? Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, the the sample size is actually fairly small for the the initial approach. There are two sample sizes that are used, and I won't get into the details simply because institutions can look those up on the Humda page of the CFPB's website. Suffice it to say that there are are two potential sample sizes that we use to look at. The expanded is triggered if we find a certain number of errors, and, and those numbers actually are fairly low in terms of the tolerance for errors. It's important to note that when an institution is looking at its own data set and wants to conduct a similar sort of sampling, those procedures are all available online. And so they're, they're easy to follow. The issue that occurs when we identify above the threshold, we, we end up, triggering the expanded review, we determine that there are substantive volumes of errors in the Humda data, then that can trigger two things. First of all, civil money penalties, which obviously can be quite costly for the institution alone. But then more commonly, the largest part of the expense to a financial institution is that they have to scrub the data and correct the errors, which means going physically through files or going through the electronic data captured in the system, and correcting all of those entries. And, you know, one of the key issues that can occur is some banks that use LOS also deploy a parallel paper system of record keeping. And Sometimes you'll see a problem I saw frequently in the past were loan underwriters making notations about certain aspects of the loan. For example, they discover that the debt to income is different from what they had originally or the appraised value comes in much lower than they had anticipated for the transaction, resulting in a denial that then they write, simply on the underwriting sheet by hand, it never gets transcribed to the LOS. And so the incorrect data ends up getting reported on the HumdaLar as a result of that discrepancy between the electronic and the paper files.
0: So you use a term, and we're so, I think, accustomed to that, uh, working in regulatory agencies using acronyms. So by LOS, uh, what did you mean by that?
1: yeah loan origination software or los so it's any electronic system that a bank uses some are developed in house some are packaged off the shelf from vendors and they're obviously utilized to support the underwriting and origination processes
0: of lending good so so what i hear you saying is there's there's really an opportunity cost that is lost by the bank and what the the amount of time and effort that employees are putting into going back to scrub the Humda data. And that there are processes and systems like a loan origination system that captures a lot of that data, whether that's done internally or otherwise, that really helps to ensure greater accuracy. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. and, And I think a key point to make here is that if you deploy parallel systems where you're using an LOS, but you also have the paper files, it's important to place primacy on the electronic systems that the bank should have, or the financial institution rather, should have policies and procedures in place to ensure that the electronic record is the official record, is the final record, and that any note-taking, etc., on the paper files has to be transcribed, even if often the incentive goes away when I know this loan is being withdrawn, or I know it's being denied. And so I might not type in what I've written hand notes on the page. It's Mm -hmm. critical to make sure that there are processes to ensure that information gets transcribed, and is housed centrally, in the electronic systems and placing less reliance on the paper files.
0: And this kind of gets to a larger point. I think that we're, we're seeing within banks and the improved technology that's out there is the use of technology and software really helps to improve the accuracy and the time commitment that people are, are spending with this, whether on the front end or the back end going to have to go back and do a scrub file review. It doesn't sound that that is as difficult when you have a software system that is pulling that in. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it is much easier to manage data accuracy if you're using the electronic systems effectively as we all know, you know, certainly as regulators, we saw that within our agencies old habits die hard. Right. People give up paper files with some challenges and some resistance. And so it's important to make sure that when you're implementing these systems that you're deploying them effectively and holistically, that you're ensuring that you've rounded out your policies and procedures, and that the incentives are there, that the management controls are there to ensure that that data is getting transcribed effectively into that system, because ultimately that will reduce the risk of errors, reduce the cost of the effect of errors, and eliminate all that corrective action that could be needed down the road.
0: When a bank or a financial institution is going through kind of their fair lending examination that's as a result of the Humda data, what's a key piece in that, and where do regulators start in that process?
1: When we obtain the Humda data each year, we conduct a series of statistical analyses on the data that's reported in an effort to identify what potential focal points exist at what particular institutions so that we can then determine what our examination approach will be, generally the way agencies are set up, there are specific groups of staff and resources to conduct these activities. So those have to be planned. And in the case, in OCC's case, of course, there are community banks or sized banks, and there are large banks, and those resources are very stratified. Now, they may draw on each other as needed. But in terms of the scheduling, etc, that all really comes about from that statistical analysis and figuring out which issues appear to be most tantamount for examination. The field offices in OCC's case make a determination as to which focal points in cases where a bank has multiple focal points that they will examine. And that may be dependent on historical experience with that institution. If they've had prior exams under pricing, for example, and a redlining issue arises in the current analysis, they may choose to focus on that rather than repeating activities that have been previously examined and potentially explained. So then the, the once we've made the determination as to which activities we're going to focus on, Some may may require comparative file review, others may not depending on the type of focal point. But if there is comparative file review, obviously examiners will be coming in. They will be communicating with the bank well in advance and requesting specific files that they identify through file sampling procedures that we deploy and then going into the, exam, in, into the bank or the financial institution to look at those files and collect additional data that they then compare a certain group of files against other files to determine what are the reasons that there are these statistical discrepancies and are they in fact validated or invalidated by that analysis.
0: Thank you. So one of the common issues that I've heard from bankers over time is that errors have really come about because uh, from applications that did not result in a loan origination. Is that true? So when that's the case, what are those referred to and and, uh, how do regulators deal with that?
1: We actually, in my experience, we see that fairly commonly. Back when I was doing the regression modeling in the early 2000s, we routinely went in and conducted the file reviews and determined that in the the data integrity portion of the exam determined that there were errors in the what are called fallout so the denied withdrawn approved not accepted the the loans that didn't go through that there were often errors in that data because it, going to the very issue i was talking about earlier where they had parallel systems while they were underwriting using an LOS, they were maintaining a lot of information, hand notes in paper files. And so when they, and this was at multiple banks, so you know they had not transitioned to relying solely on the electronic environment. And so those paper files were not referred to, though, when the bank generated its humdalar for submission. As a result, they were relying on electronic data that was not the most recent information about the transaction, which then of course led to data integrity issues requiring correction. But again, it goes back to that. If you place primacy on the electronic systems and create a culture where recording that information in the electronic system you know, is is required, expected, and is just part of what people do as a day-to-day function, it, you can significantly reduce the risk of those ki- kinds of errors.
0: Because your notes and data are in there, but I, I think you brought up a good point earlier. Old habits are hard to die. And so when you're used to, and again, you've brought this point up several times, uh, addressing or dealing with paper files, and you switch to the new system, we all make little edits. And I've done that with my own calendar. I'm like, oh, I had a note to that, but I didn't enter that into my calendar, my electronic calendar. So those are kind of good points to remember for institutions. The the next step in the process is uh, if there's an error, talk about matched pairs and what matched pairs in terms of the analysis help regulators in determining?
1: Well, the, the matched pair really gives us a view into much greater detail about the transaction than the humda data provides. Because of course, it's all of the information that gets aggregated into humda Those fields we can see separately, for example, on the HUD-1 settlement sheet or in the Truth and Lending Disclosures, it's at the TRID form. We're able to see all of that information, whether it's electronic or or paper files, and then we're able to look to non-reportable issues. For, For instance, one of the common examples historically has been the ability to save and so two borrowers who might otherwise look very similar in the humda data one had half a million dollars for example in the 401k which demonstrated to the to the lender that that borrower had the capacity and the discipline to save and whereas another applicant with similar characteristics that you know in, in both cases both applicants were somewhat marginal, that they weren't slam dunk approvals, they weren't slam dunk denials. But that second applicant, the, the comparator, which typically was the target file, that you might have a minority applicant who, because of their earning levels, et cetera, hasn't had that demonstrated capacity to save, so it doesn't have the savings to fall back on in case that person becomes unemployed, for example, whereas the the comparator file that we're looking at has some substantial resources that they can turn to to cover a a period of financial difficulty. Those sorts of things can make the difference between how two similar files with different outcomes are, are viewed.
0: And you brought up a, an example earlier, like with your mortgage, that you may have been offered discounts by the seller. But if I'm buying something or if in this match pair, the other person may not have been. Those that's information that would be hopefully in that electronic file that would discuss that. So when the examiners are looking at these disparities, they would be able to see and take those into account. Is that is that accurate?
1: Yes, that's correct. And and in that example, all of that information would be parsed out in detail in the HUD-1 settlement form. So an examiner or a reviewer, if the financial institution is doing an in-house review, would be able to ascertain those differences and see, ah, this is why this applicant was charged this much in points and fees for basically what looks like the same transaction as another applicant who is charged significantly higher fees
0: right i think that's just a great example of kind of the point we're talking about is that humda data starts the point of you know regulators being able to ask questions regulators and the public so you know i think again banks are always concerned or financial institutions concerned when information is available to the public, how does this help an institution when they're looking at trends in their lending?
1: Well, there there are a number of things that institutions can do with the data that are quite useful. And of course, depending on the size of the institution, the larger the lending volume, the more important it is to conduct periodic reviews. For smaller institutions, I think it's important at least to be looking at their data annually. For larger institutions with greater volume, they may want to be looking at the data on a quarterly or monthly basis. In fact, when you get to a certain size, you absolutely should be looking at it with that frequency and monitoring for trends in lending, because you will see patterns emerge over time when you take that step back. Often the data is being dealt with because the loan transactions are occurring on a daily basis and nobody really has a holistic view of the complete set of activity in which the institution is engaging. So it's important to have that periodic review. You're able to stratify all of that data. And if you're using an LOS, it's very easy to to run a quarterly or monthly loan application register and conduct the kind of comparative analyses, whether it's looking at simply approval and denial rates across groups quarter to quarter to quarter, year to year to year, so that you can have a historical trend of how you're performing over time. Is your performance improving? Is it weakening? And that then serves as the trigger for trying to find the answers of why you're seeing those changes. And another aspect of the, the analysis that you can do is look at your data compared to the peer data now it's not you know that's not going to result in a perfect analysis because the publicly available data that financial institutions have access to is not as detailed as the data they contain themselves so there there won't be an exact match from what you may have in a field versus what is in the the peer data. But it gives you a benchmark to have a sense of how is the industry performing on these metrics, whether it's approval rates or whether it's delving into statistical analysis, which again, larger institutions should be doing on some regular basis in order to identify potential concerns that might show up when the regulators conduct their analysis. So that, you know, those two different approaches can be very helpful to really preparing you to understand what your lending activity is when you identify discrepancies, being able to dig, you know, if we're we're overperforming compared to the industry, we're the best player in the market potentially. That's a great PR talking point. But if we're lagging, if we're a poor performer, or we look much worse than the industry, and and if especially if you do this statistical analysis and discover that your lending is comparatively weak, that you've got s- significant disparities between your performance and the industry, you want to start to figure out why that's occurring, and some some may be internal, some may be external but identifying the reasons why and being able to explain that when confronted, whether by a regulator or by a public entity or private citizen who just happens to analyze the data and says, gee, I noticed that you're not doing very well and now you've got this branch application or merger application that we want to protest because you're a weak performer in the market and we don't want you buying that other bank and pulling them down. Knowing why those differences are occurring, it may be product offering, it may be competition, the type of competition in the marketplace. There may be a variety of reasons that your performance is what it is. Being able to discuss that cogently is much better than coming back and saying, well, we don't know." Or, you know, we're good people, we don't discriminate. Those, it, those answers aren't going to be dispositive in those situations. And so having an awareness of how you're performing in advance of somebody raising it against you is really critical.
0: So, no, I, I, I see that. And you know that I'm on a board of a bank here in, in Virginia and we're reviewing Humda and our data quarterly. And we can begin as a board member, I can begin to ask questions about why aren't we in certain areas and what are we doing and how are we marketing in those areas? Are those sufficient reasons that banks should be looking for? Is there anything else that in your career says you want to make sure that you're documenting? I mean, we've talked about competition and you've got some large players in the market, but do regulators just want to see that you've made an effort in some of those areas that you may not be strong in or or some of those uh, census tracts?
1: Well, I, I think one of the key points is once you know what you know, and you're going to know it whether you do the analysis or somebody else picks up on it later on. If there is an issue, if there are discrepancies in the data, you'll learn about it one way or the other. Obviously, it's better to to know in advance of somebody else pointing it out, whether it's public or a regulator. But I think if you then are going to the next step and ascertaining why do we have these disparities and then going to the next step and saying what can we do about that is is it a problem and what, if it is what can we do to redress that issue and you know one of the key things that i would encourage institutions to do is when they've identified a potential issue They understand why it's occurring. They think they have a a couple of options in terms of solving that problem. That's really the time to engage the regulator and say, we've identified this concern. We are concerned about it. We want to fix it. Here are some of the ways we think we can fix it, which could be changing some of their underwriting requirements, changing some of their product offerings. It may also be, you know, there's been a lot of talk recently about special purpose credit programs. So it may be the development of a special purpose credit program to address a segment of the population that they may not be lending to or areas in which they may not lend. But either way, reaching out to the regulator and discussing with the regulator what the appropriate mitigating actions are is really critical. because there have been a number of cases where banks have implemented a solution to a discrimination problem they've identified that actually may have ameliorated the situation for one group, but exacerbated it for another. So I think in one of the cases I was involved with about 20 years ago now, the bank improved its lending to black applicants at the expense of Hispanic applicants. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, so they went from one problem to another and both are equally bad. So determining what the appropriate course of action is not something that territory that a financial institution should advise, advisedly go
0: on their own. So uh, the key takeaway, and, and it's something I, I've talked about regularly with any institution is When you see an issue, engage your regulator and be upfront and and talk about what you're going to be doing, because as you just alluded to, there are unintended consequences that you may not have considered or your financial institution may not have considered. And the regulators are going to hear that and help try to determine like, oh, you just you're creating another issue for yourself.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's really important to recognize that regulators are human, too. And, you know, they appreciate honest, honesty and fort Reithnet. So if you if you identify an issue and you come to your regulator and say, you know, we, we have these concerns, we've thought about how we might want to fix it, we want your feedback or we want to engage you on developing, you know, you could engage them much sooner and say, you know, we're not sure how to fix this. And so we're looking for your input and guidance. There's a lot of experience in those agencies because we've seen cases after cases after cases. And even in my old position, I used to sit down periodically with staff from DOJ and from the FDIC and the Federal Reserve and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and we would talk about cases that were ongoing or that had been finalized. So that we all had really broad awareness of what each other was seeing and the similarities and differences. So there's a lot of expertise there that can be leveraged, and you know it's essentially the you know the brownie points that we talk about. That you know you really get brownie points for self-identifying issues, for bringing them to the regulator, looking for solutions, or even with ideas for solutions that goes a long way to mitigating the potential adverse outcomes of those findings, i.e. it's going to be a lot more severe if I as a regulator come into your financial institution and identify issues that you know, we've seen what the statistical disparities are. We come in, we look at the files. We're able to validate that those disparities are indeed accurate. They might not be as severe as the Humda data shows, but we're able to say still identify that they're significant statistically. And so you're heading down a road where you're going to have a cease and desist order or a consent order you're going to have civil money penalties, potentially, you're going to have to engage in some sort of redress to consumers who are adversely affected, which means money, you're going to engage a lot of staff time in those activities, which means more money. So it it can be very costly, but the shoe falls a lot harder if I as a regulator, I'm the one who am initiating all of this as opposed to a financial institution that said, "We found this. We know we need to fix it. Here's what we think we may want to do. What do you think? Right. And then you know making sure also though that once you have agreement that you act quickly, to mitigate those issues and to implement the agreed-upon solutions. Because, you know, I've seen cases in the past where banks self-identified and they came forward and said, here's what we think we can do about it. And then four years went by and they still hadn't implemented the solution. So they got the first part of it right by coming to us and telling us what they found and what they planned to do about it, but then they didn't do it.
0: So you you really touch on, I think, some key takeaways. It's the ongoing monitoring that the bank should be doing, which will help identify these. It's taking timely action and working in partnership with the regulators. And if you say you're going to do this, have some accountability for how that is done and when that is done and and, uh, set those kind of timeframes for make sure that those processes or new processes may be implemented. So, kind of one of the other last controls and first lines of defense that we talk about in terms of compliance is just really give me the importance of when regulators are looking at these things, the importance of policies and procedures, and the importance of training.
1: Uh, yeah, those are absolutely critical. I think one of the one of the good things that banks can reference a fair amount of guidance on the regulator sites, and even if you're not subject to heightened expectations, heightened standards. They're a good reference point. When I worked at the OTS, we had what was called the SMART approach to compliance. It wasn't that SMART because it had two A's instead of one, <laughs> so it misspelled it. But, and that was basically a construct of six things that any institution, regardless of size, could incorporate into its control environment. And that it, you know, systems, and that doesn't just mean IT systems, but it's the policies and procedures and the controls and the audits and everything that you apply systematically to engage in your work and ensure that that work is accurate and that it meets the risk tolerances that the board has identified as acceptable, that it has achieved the required standards that that the board and management have set. Then the, the second phase of it is of, of the SMART model was monitoring. And that's kind of the, the day-to-day monitoring of activity and awareness of what's going on day-to-day and ensuring that on an individualized level that staff know what the policies and procedures are and know how to implement them and know how to verify and understand when something has been implemented properly versus incorrectly. Then there's the assessments, which really gets into the self-assessments and audit functions that an institution should apply on a periodic basis to determine, are they meeting those standards that they set under the systems element? Mm -hmm. Then there's accountability, which obviously is employees are accountable for their work. That, and ensuring the accuracy of their work, which ties into the monitoring piece on a day-to-day basis, and then is validated through the assessment process. And, but ensuring that employees understand what their accountability is, that they're responsible for their work and its accuracy, and that they comply with those requirements. Again, you know, tying into the audit in order to test to make sure that that is in fact happening. Then there's response, which simply means when you identify problems, you take responsive action, you fix them, you identify what the appropriate courses of action are, what the plus sides and downsides of those actions, and you identify the optimal approach to resolve problems. And then the last element was training. And obviously, that kind of speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I could go on for quite a few hours, probably just talking about some of the horror stories that I saw in the training realm. A quick anecdote, we were at a bank up in Maine, a fairly about a billion dollar bank that had a wide footprint across the entire state of Maine. And they had a large number of branches. And they had two staff who every day they looked at the cash transaction report, So not at all related to fair lending, it's a BSA example, but they would look at this report and make sure that the large cash transaction report that anything over $10,000 that the system had filed a currency transaction report for. Well, the system is designed to do that automatically anyway. So it was a useless exercise when I asked them, how they learned to do that and why they said, Oh, well, that's what Brenda taught us to do when she retired. Well, when did Brenda retire? Turns out she'd retired 16 years before. Yep. Those employees had never been to external training, so they hadn't been encouraged even to take any online BSA courses or anything. So they were simply going through the motions of doing this for 16 years. What that meant was that the bank had missed quite a few structured transactions over the course of time, and therefore had not filed suspicious activity reports, which can come with some pretty hefty penalties if you fail to implement that properly and and report as required. So, you know, that's just an indication of why it's important to ensure that employees have training, and more importantly, that it's done to maintain their currency about what the requirements are, and also give them an understanding why they're doing them. So it shouldn't be a one and done, it needs to be periodic, you know, whether it's yearly for some things, whether it's every couple of years, you know, the regulators typically have a pattern of sending staff alternating years to conferences, for example, so that staff can hear the latest and greatest, what's the cutting edge. And sometimes we learn about things that we otherwise wouldn't have encountered in our roles as examiners. And so financial institutions can benefit from that same focus. But the, but the policies and procedures really that you, you talked about early in the question and the training really give you the roadmap for how you're going to get to where you want to go in the manner you want to get there so that it's not a free for all Mm -hmm. so that you're, you're able to establish milestones that you achieve over time that you, you drive towards and you're able to mark them off and say, and say, this is, and some of it may be iterative loan files are processed the same way day in, day out, day in, day out. But if you have, the methodologies in place that will ensure that it's done with
0: consistency. So and, the policies and procedures are really that really the guardrails, but also roadmap for what you're going to achieve and how you're going to achieve that spelling out kind of and following the, the, the risk tolerances that the board has set forth. And the training is the communication of those to ensure that everybody is understanding those, correct?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. The the policy really sets out what the direction is. And so that that's really the map. The procedures give you much more detail and build in the guardrails, you know, that really define that you, you will do this, you won't do this and that's really critical in the fair lending space you know one of the areas that gets institutions into trouble not just in the fair lending space but commonly in that space is exceptions to policy you establish a policy you say this is how we want this to work most of the time we realize that we can't possibly cover every scenario so there will be exceptions but how many exceptions you allow can often become the problem because sometimes exceptions become the policy and therefore the policy is no longer what the board and senior management intended to execute. And so having those guardrails well-defined and making sure that from a fair lending standpoint, you know, what range of flexibility do we give originators on loan interest rates that they offer or points and fees that they charge to customers? Where's the latitude to cut or add? And then also, you know, on the back end, how are we going to monitor that to make sure that we're not going completely off the map and ending up somewhere that does comport with a significant amount of fair lending risk?
0: So again I think one of the, the takeaways here is really getting back to ensuring that you have those policies and procedures that that guardrail those procedures that are going to outline that and those are going to be crucial if you're involved in a fair lending review that or analysis that it has gone through. Uh, and especially if you've gotten a letter saying, oh, there's been a referral to DOJ, your policies are gonna be the basis of, this is what we were doing and why, explaining that. The training, again, self-evident, the regulators are going to look at that. That's where we kind of started the basis of the examinations, I know. And I know we could spend so much more time talking about exceptions. So as we're already at the top of the hour, Is there any last insights that you can share uh, with us or anything that you would bring up from your experience?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think probably one of the most critical things that institutions should focus on is the need to be proactive, that you need to build out appropriate systems and controls that accomplish the objectives that you want to accomplish as an institution be cognizant of how internal and external changes might impact mm-hmm. the direction that the institution is going. So planning for the future, revising policies, they should policies and procedures, one of the common flaws I've seen over the years is that they were written 20 years ago or 30 years ago and haven't changed once. They should be living, breathing documents. They should be dynamic because the institution is dynamic. The environment in which the institutions operate changes continually. And, you know, as we've seen in many arenas, it's changing faster than ever. And it just keeps getting faster. And so being proactive and really watching, you know, staying on the helm of the ship and making sure that there are no icebergs in your future is really critical. And that when you see an iceberg that you take the appropriate corrective action to avoid
0: hitting that iceberg. No, as we're, we're seeing a lot of changes just with technology, how quickly things are moving and then just being subject to weather events has caused a lot of us to pivot quickly. And and again, you echo a lot of the same sentiments I've raised with bankers and boards of directors to really ensure that their policies and procedures reflect who they are, but it is part of the, they need to be updated regularly, part of that living and breathing organism. So um, Bobby, I thank you so much for your time. This was incredibly helpful and thank you for being with us today.
1: Absolutely, thank you for having me.
0: Hey everyone, that wraps up another great episode of the NCAST, where we are able to talk with people on the front lines of risk and compliance across the financial services industry. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And if you're not subscribed yet, we invite you to do so on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you soon.